1 Kings chapter 8 and we read from verse 22 to verse 30. This is a lengthy chapter of some 66 verses and I'm not attempting in any way to cover it in one sermon which is the normal pattern because it is far too important a subject the dedication of the temple and Solomon's prayers on that occasion. We read from verse 22. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. And he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven above or on earth below like you who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants, who walk before you with all their hearts. You have kept what you promised your servant David, my father. You have both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. Therefore, Lord God of Israel, now keep what you promised your servant David, my father, saying, You shall not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel, only if your sons take heed to their way, that they walk before me as you have walked before me. And now I pray, O God of Israel, let your word come true, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I have built. Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord, my God. And listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you today, that your eyes may be opened toward this temple, night and day, toward the place of which you said, My name shall be there, that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes towards this place. And may you hear the supplication of your servant, and of your people Israel, when they pray toward this place, here in heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. A few more chapters on in 1 Kings, in 1 Kings 18, you'll find the well-known story of Elijah challenging the prophets of Baal. He invites them to call upon the name of their God and to bring down fire to consume the sacrifice. And they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon. O Baal, hear us! O Baal, hear us! And the scripture says there was no voice. No one answered. They leapt about and danced about in frenzy, in a kind of frenzied dancing. They cut themselves with lances and with knives so that the blood flowed. And the Bible says there was no voice. No one answered. And in the end, no one paid any attention. Elijah mocked them. Cry louder, he said. Perhaps your God's meditating. 
Perhaps he's gone on a journey. Perhaps he's fallen asleep. Why did those men, those prophets of Baal, work themselves up into such a frenzy? Why did they cut themselves and injure themselves and shed a lot of blood? Presumably because that was the way they believed they had to pray in order for God, their Baal, to answer them. How different is Solomon? This is a world of difference. As he stands with his arms outstretched to heaven before the bronze altar in the outer temple, he then calls on the name of the Lord God of Israel. Verse 22. There in the assembly of all Israel, Solomon leads that vast assembly in true prayer to the one true and living God. Here is one of the great prayers of the Old Testament Scriptures. It stands alongside the prayers of Moses, of Samuel, of David, his father, of Jehoshaphat, of Asa, of Hezekiah, of Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah. In each of those prayers, and in this prayer in particular, you see and listen to effective prayer, real prayer. And real prayer and effective prayer is grounded upon knowing the God to whom you pray. Because that will dictate your approach, that will dictate your praise and your prayers and your petitions and your supplications and your thanksgivings and your confession and your cries for help and whether you receive the forgiveness of sins from this God or not. Solomon's prayer is a long one and we're only going to deal with the first part of it. The rest of the prayer is concerned with forgiveness from verses 31 to 53. And we cannot cover all of that ground this evening. But I want to deal with the grounds of effective prayer. The grounds, the foundations of real prayer. How well do you know the God to whom you pray? How confident are you when you pray? How expectant are you when you bring your petitions to Him? Do you enjoy the kind of confidence and expectancy that Solomon enjoyed? Do you pray, let your word come true, like Solomon did? Here is effective prayer. Baal worshippers worshipped and called upon a God who was no God. They displayed their ignorance, totally ineffective. Solomon, by contrast, there's no frenzy, there's no bloodshed. But instead there is a profound knowledge of God to whom he prays. The God in whom he trusts. And he believes in God's power and God's willingness to answer his petitions. There are four things that are reflected here in his prayer about God, 
that lie at the foundation of real, effective prayer. Four things about God. First of all, God to whom we pray is incomparable. Verse 23. As he begins his prayer, he says, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven above or on earth below like you. The English translation loses something of the force. Literally, he says, Lord God of Israel, none like you. The God in heaven above, the earth below. None like you. You. God is without comparison. He is incomparable. He has no parallel. He has no equal. He is unique throughout the entirety of creation. Why? Because he is the eternal God who made all things. He is unique in time and space. He is the uncreated God who has made himself the God of his people, Israel, and made himself known to them, and only to them. But he is the only true God, and Solomon knows that, and it lies at the very heart of his prayer. There is no one like you. And that's not just a polite recognition on the part of Solomon. This is a warm-hearted conviction and persuasion and confession. This is adoration. This is praise. This is a man who is overwhelmed by the greatness of God. The legions of pagan gods and goddesses are no rivals. The Dagons of this world, the Baals of this world are nothing. The gods of Egypt, the gods of Samaria, the gods of Assyria, the gods of Babylon, the gods of Greece and of Rome are nothing. And the gods of this age are nothing. There is no one like you, says Solomon. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. And those who make them are like them says the prophet Isaiah, and everyone who trusts in them. That isn't Isaiah, it's the psalmist. Psalm 135. The Lord God of Israel is not simply greater than these gods. He alone is God. They are nothing. They don't exist except in the minds of fallen men and women. He is above and beyond comparison. He is the real living God. Moses asked, who is like you? Having been redeemed out of Egypt, having crossed the Red Sea, Moses asked, who is like you among the gods? Glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders. There is no one like you. And David said the same thing. Solomon's father, overwhelmed by the incomparableness of his God. There is no one like you, he said, nor any God beside you. In Second Samuel chapter 7 and verse 22. The impression that I have, this is an implication I believe of this prayer. The impression given to me is this, and I trust it is to you, that David had been a faithful teacher to his son Solomon. 
And fundamentally he had taught him the character of the God whom he served and worshipped. He taught him about the Lord God of Israel. He taught him about the things that happened in the days of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The things that happened in the days of Moses when God brought his people out of that land of Egypt. And he shared his convictions. He shared his experiences. And Solomon had become a wise son. He bowed his ear and he bowed his heart to his father's words and instructions and imbibed all that David had taught him about the God whom he worshipped. And the first thing that he said is that there is no one like you. Those of you who are fathers and mothers, let me exhort you. Be sure you personally teach your children the character of the Lord your God. Don't assume that it just will rub off. Sit down and teach them, formally and informally. As you pray, you will teach them of the character of their, your God. But teach them. Teach them who he is. Teach them what he is like. Teach them his works and his ways and the wonder of his ways. And show them and impress upon them. There is no one like this God. And he is the one true and living God. That was Solomon's fundamental conviction. That is what grounds his prayers and his petitions. But there is a second thing about God. Not only is God incompatible but we read in verse 27 that this same Lord God is immense. There is a phrase there in verse 27. Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. Solomon has built one of the grandest temples in the ancient eastern world. A temple of burnished gold. And the glory of the Lord filled that temple. So much so that the priests could not stand in there to minister. They had to get out. The glory was too much. They would have perished. And yet Solomon is not so foolish as to think that somehow God is confined to this temple. It's implied in what he says in verse 23, there is no God in heaven above or on earth below like you. But it is made, what is implicit there is explicit in verse 27. Heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. The God of Israel, your God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ himself, is immense. There is a transcendence about God. Someone has called this the massive majesty of God. The Lord God of Israel condescended to dwell amongst his people in that cloud, in the temple. But no creature can compare with God. You cannot contain him. You cannot box him. You cannot build walls around him. Even in a magnificent earthly temple, God is simply too big. He is too vast. He is too immense. His glory 
fills the whole heavens and the earth. And the God to whom Solomon prays is altogether uncontainable, vast, immense, altogether incomprehensible to men. There is no way any human being or even any angel in heaven can measure the greatness and the majesty and the immensity of God. Heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain him. Even they can't confine him. He is so great. It was Isaiah, remember, who said, and I'm right this time, it was Isaiah who said, the nations are as a drop, a drop of water in a bucket. The dust on the scales. Ladies, think of the dust on the scales on some of you in your kitchen. He says, the nations. He says, they're just like dust, as far as God is concerned. Carved images are a mockery. To whom would you liken God, says Isaiah. God will not fit into any categories that you and I make. He is in a category of his own. He is God and God alone. Immense, massive in his majesty and glory. And if you or I could get a grip upon God's greatness, he would cease to be God. For he would be like us. Or something like us. God's incomparableness, God's immensity, they colour, they direct, they control Solomon's whole approach of his prayer. Before he begins to utter any petitions, these are the thoughts of God that filled his mind, that gripped his heart, that moved him to pray as he does. They dictated his whole approach and his words and what he felt in his own heart as he stood there and led that whole congregation in prayer. Let me ask you one simple word of application at this point. When you come to pray, are you impressed upon your mind and upon your heart are you impressed with this knowledge of the Lord your God? Are you aware that there is none like him? Are you aware that the heaven of heavens cannot contain him? Are you aware of this massive majesty, this greatness, this immensity, this uniqueness of the God whom you are speaking to in prayer? I would suggest that all too often we are not. Why? Because we forget. We rush into prayer without thinking about who we are speaking to. Without being suitably impressed with his incomparableness and his immensity. And we rush into our petitions because we are too absorbed with ourselves and not absorbed as we ought to be first and foremost with God. In his greatness. But there is more to effective prayer. Here in this passage. 
It is not only that God is incomparable, it is not only that the Lord God is immense. Thirdly, we find that the Lord God is utterly reliable. In verse 23 again, There is no God in heaven above or on earth below like you who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. The key phrase there is this Lord God of Israel who keeps covenant and mercy. He keeps covenant and mercy. He is utterly reliable. Now this isn't a new thing that we have discovered in Solomon's prayers on this day when the temple is dedicated. That is the whole theme of verses 14 to 21. God's faithfulness. As Solomon has blessed the congregation and blesses the Lord, he has reflected on God's faithfulness. He has done it before in chapter 3 and in verse 6. We read there, Solomon said, You have shown great mercy to your servant David my father because he walked before you in truth, in righteousness and in uprightness of heart with you. You have continued this great kindness for him and you've given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. He's been reflecting all his life as a king on the faithfulness of God. And Solomon was profoundly aware of the mercy of God shown first of all to David and then to him as the one who is now sitting upon the throne of David. But there is something more here, something more specific about the faithfulness of God. We've seen parts of it, but I want to add things to it this evening. He keeps covenant and mercy with his servants who walk before him with all their heart. God's covenant is God's, are God's oaths, God's promises. The promises and oaths that he swore to Abraham, to Israel, and especially to David. Those are the things to David that are uppermost now in Solomon's mind. What God promised to David regarding the building of the temple, regarding his house, regarding his kingdom. And as we will see in a moment, regarding the kingdom that is to come. And that one of David's sons would sit upon that throne. Israel has been redeemed according to promise, according to the Lord's sworn oaths. They've entered the land, the land of promise, the land that God swore to give to Abraham and Isaac and to Jacob. They've defeated their enemies, again, according to promise. But what is it that has gripped Solomon? Verse 24, you kept what you promised your servant David, my father. The scripture speaks of God's mouth and God's hand. Now I know I'm repeating what I've said before, but I want to underline it. Solomon knows that God has spoken promises with his mouth and he has fulfilled them by his omnipotent hand. Baal has a mouth. We don't hear a word from him. Baal has hands, but they are weak and powerless. What happens to Dagon? When Dagon was, when the Ark of the Covenant was placed with Dagon in Dagon's temple, they came the next morning and there was Dagon on the floor in pieces. His hands were broken. God isn't like that. What his mouth speaks, his hand fulfills. God is utterly reliable, faithful, powerful. 
But there is more here. God, this Lord God of Israel, not only keeps covenant, but he keeps mercy. Notice that word there in verse 23. This is the new element that has not been mentioned so much before. It's been there, but by implication. Now it is made explicit by Solomon in his prayer. That's a very important word in the Old Testament. Over 260 times in the Old Testament. And nearly half of them are found in the book of Psalms. It's the word that is sometimes translated his steadfast love, his loving kindness, his covenant mercy. What it means is that Solomon is declaring the faithfulness of God not simply in his promises and in his oaths. He's going right back to the very character and disposition of God towards his people. His disposition is one of utter loyalty. His commitment to be the God of his people and not to fail them, not to abandon them, not to forsake them, but to remain their God and be their God. It's his love for his people that he refuses then to remove from his people. He has set that love upon his people and he will not let them go. He has bound himself to be their God. And this is the God whom Solomon is praying to. The God who keeps covenant. The God who keeps mercy. And it is an abundant mercy. It is an enduring mercy. God is committed to being the God of his people forever. This is one of the key ways in which God is incompatible. One of the refrains that David taught those who worshipped in the temple was to say his mercy is forever. His mercy forever. His steadfast love eternal. And this knowledge that Solomon has of this God, this conviction, this persuasion, this knowledge of God as the God who keeps covenant and keeps mercy, that informs and promotes Solomon's prayers. Solomon again has been well taught by his father David. And note now in verse 25, because of those convictions and those persuasions, he prays the way that he does. His plea, and it is a plea in verse 25, on the basis of God's incompatibleness, on the basis of God's immensity, on the basis of God's faithfulness, as the one who keeps covenant and mercy. Therefore, he says, verse 25, Lord God of Israel, now keep what you promised your servant David, my father, saying, you shall not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel. Only if your sons take heed to their way, they walk before me as you have walked before me. He pleads with God to keep a very specific promise that God has made with his mouth. David is now dead. But the promise was made to David and Solomon pleads it. And he pleads it 
before the God who is alive, the God who is powerful, the God who is faithful. You said to David, in effect, he is saying with God. He's arguing with God. He's expostulating with God. He is reasoning with God. Not bringing in some kind of bargaining power, but he knows God. He knows what God has said. And you have said to my father, David, my mercy shall not depart from you as I took it from Saul when I first removed it from you. From him. Second Samuel chapter 7 and verse 15 becomes the basis of his plea. Let your word be true. You see, it's a world removed from this Baal worship. This man knows what God has said. This man knows God's power. This man knows that he is a God who is faithful. This is what the scripture calls the sure mercies of David. Those are words upon Solomon's lips in Second Chronicles chapter 6 and verse 42. They're not here in 1 Kings 8, but they are in the parallel passage in 2 Chronicles. These are the words found upon the lips of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 3. And they are promises which are fulfilled ultimately in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, of the seed of David. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If you will turn with me to Acts chapter 13. Here is Paul's sermon to the Jews in Antioch in Pisidia. And he has said in verse 33, God has fulfilled this, this promise made to the fathers, in that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you, and that he raised him from the dead no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. And Paul goes on to proclaim the forgiveness of sins to those who hurt him in the name of Jesus Christ. Now I know that I'm not expanding everything that is here in this verse in 1 Kings chapter 8. But I want to draw your attention to the God who is utterly faithful. The God who keeps covenant. The God who keeps mercy. The disposition, the heart, the loyalty, the commitment of this God is not just God's promises. It is not just God's oaths. But the very heart, the very character of God Solomon knows him. He knows the promises, but he knows the God of the promises. It is a God who keeps covenant and mercy. And he knows that that God is totally committed to his promises and totally committed to his people. And to being the God of his people. And to being the faithful God of his people. Who will perform all that he has said. But then there is a fourth thing that lies at the foundation of this man's prayer. And that is this, that the Lord God is personally responsive. I wasn't quite sure how to put this, but it's the best I could come up with in the time that I had. 
God is personally responsive. The Baal devotees pray to God who has ears, but they are stone deaf. No voice, no answer. Why? Because they are deaf. They are no real gods. How different is the Lord God of Israel to whom Solomon prays? And Solomon knows this well. This is part of his persuasion, part of his conviction. God has a mouth that speaks. God has hands that are powerful to fulfill that word. But then look at verse 28. God has eyes that are open. And although the word ears is not used, it is quite clear that God has ears that hear the prayers of his people. Verse 28, Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you today, that your eyes may be open toward this temple night and day toward the place of which you said, My name shall be there, that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes towards this place. The idols that men invent are dumb, powerless, deaf, blind. They're useless. The Lord God of Israel is alive. He is involved. He is personal. He is approachable. He is responsive. He has ears that hear, as it were, and eyes that are open to see. Is that audacious? Is that presumptuous? To believe that God hears and sees when you pray? Not at all. It lies at the very foundation of why Solomon prays the way that he does. He believes that God actually sees listens, hears and answers. Otherwise, why should he pray? Why do you pray? Do you pray believing that God has eyes to see and ears to hear your prayers? This is a way of speaking, I know. God doesn't have a body like men. But the way in which God is described to us is in a way then that we can understand. Solomon believes with all his heart as he pours out his petition now before God. It lies at the very foundation of his prayers that God sees what he is doing and hears his petition. And that God will hear the petitions he is about to utter and the petitions that Israel will utter in days to come when they come to the temple to worship. My Bible tells me, and you have the same Bible as I read, my Bible tells me that he hears the softest, faintest cries. The cries of those who are in distress. The sobs of a widow. The distress of an orphan. Do you remember how this God turned the bitterness of Naomi into joy? You remember how this God saw and heard the anguished tears of a Hannah and then he wiped away her reproach, persecuted by Penina, misunderstood by the priest Eli, 
Yet she poured out her heart and God heard. God answered. It lies at the heart then you see of true prayer. Of effective prayer. Of real prayer. And God hears the cries of repentant sinners. Why did you go to God in the first place? Was it not because you were persuaded that there was mercy with God? Covenant mercy. You might not have called it that. But that's what it was. Mercy. That God would hear. That God would answer. That God would save you from your sins. Go back to 1 Kings 18. The God who answered by fire when Elijah prayed. Let it be known this day, said Elijah, that you are the God in Israel and I am your servant and I have done all these things at your word. And fire came down and consumed that sacrifice with all the water in the ditches all around it. That's the God who sees. That's the God who hears. A God who is personally responsive. Solomon is telling us that the Lord God of Israel has eyes and ears of a father. Again, I know he does not use that term. But it is this personal intimacy. Here is this God who is so immense, so beyond comparison, with no equal. And yet he is prepared to hear the cries. And he is prepared to see and observe and respond to them. The crises, the needs of his people who cry out unto him. That's the kind of God that he is. And it lies at the very basis of Solomon's convictions before he even utters a petition. This is the same God whom our Lord Jesus Christ taught us in Matthew 7. Ask, seek, knock. Remember how he told his disciples? He says, which of you has a son? Your son asks for bread. You say, son, here's a stone. Or he says, if your son comes to you and asks for fish. Son, here's a serpent. If you don't do that. If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your father in heaven will give good gifts to those who ask him. Because he has eyes to see and ears to hear. Now if these things about God are true, and I trust that you are persuaded that they are true, I have declared them from the revelation of God himself in the scripture here. The God is incompatible, but he's immense, he's utterly reliable, and he's personally responsive. What effect is that going to have on the way that you pray? It's not just for those who excel in prayer, this is not just for those who lead in public prayer. This is not something just for pastors. This is not just for men folk of the church who lead in prayer in our meetings. This is something that ought to characterize all the saints of God. All those who are in Christ Jesus. This God is your God. He is my God. Irrespective of whether I am a pastor or an elder. This is true of every true child of God.
as you make the scriptures your study, you ought to come away with an increasing awareness that you are learning about God himself. There are those in our day who say, well, we don't want to read the Old Testament scriptures. They're legalistic. It's law. Those people don't know God. And they are cutting themselves off from the knowledge of God. The great, some of the greatest prayers in the scriptures are in the Old Testament. I've listed them for you. Let me suggest three ways in which this will affect the way you pray. <clears throat> three ways. First of all, there should be increasing humility before God in prayer. And increasing humility before God in prayer. Who was Solomon? Solomon was the greatest king on the earth at that time. God had exalted him and his kingdom. And yet he speaks in verse 23 about your servants. And then again in verse 28, your servant. I am your servant. I am the greatest king on the earth. No, that's not how he comes. I am your servant. We are your servants. You are our God. The awareness of God's majesty and immensity and incomparableness is even seen in his posture. He stands to pray. Then he holds out his hands to God. We find at the end of his prayer he's on his knees. Even more emphasizing his humility. The fact that he is a servant. He is not dictating. He is there as a servant. His hands spread out. Standing before God. Kneeling before God. Pouring out his heart. Here is a creature before the creator. Here is a king. The greatest king on the face of the earth. And yet before the king of kings. He kneels. He adores. He holds out his hands. He's aware of a gap. He's aware of the gulf. He's not in any way equal. He's not in any way bargaining with God. He's there because God has spoken. He's there because God has an ear to hear and an eye to see. The God who has redeemed his people. The God who has chosen his dwelling place among his people. You cannot constrain God to hear you. All the frenzy, all the blood shed by Baal worshippers availed nothing. Solomon recognized his own sinfulness and he recognized the mercy of God. And that was enough to usher him into the presence of God. Humble. Humble. That should characterize our praying and increasing humility before God, but secondly, an expanding confidence in God in prayer. Confidence and expectancy arising from God's faithfulness. We saw it there in verse 25 and verse 26 particularly. Now I pray, O God of Israel, let your word come. There is expectancy, there is confidence. 
Because of God's faithfulness, God has spoken. But because of God's commitment, God's loyalty, it's not just spoken promises, but it is God's steadfast love towards his people. He is committed to being their God. And as part of that commitment, he makes the promises. And then his people plead the promises. And he hears. And he answers. If God has been your God in the past, why do you be afraid of the future? Why should you be afraid of the future? It's a fickleness of heart, isn't it? We call into question God's promises and God's disposition of steadfast love toward us. We doubt whether he will be our continual rock and our refuge and our strength he says I will never leave you I will never forsake you but what do we do we find ourselves saying you no longer care about me alright something happens in your life and you doubt the goodness and kindness and the love of God how fickle we are But if we have an increasing understanding of who this God is, then there will be an expanding confidence in God as we pray. Also the fact, there's another aspect of this, also the fact that his eyes are open, that his ears hear, that his fatherly disposition and attitude towards us is guaranteed. Don't let the devil fill your hearts with lies about God. Saying that God does not see, that God will not hear, that God will not be merciful. Job had to resist the lies of the devil, even when his frustrated wife said to him, curse God and die. And he refused. He would not believe those lies. He trusted in God. This God, says the psalmist, He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. He who keeps Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. That's your God. His ear is open. His eyes are open night and day towards his people who call upon him. Increasing humility then before God in prayer and expanding confidence in God in prayer And a growing, thirdly, a growing obedience before God in your whole life. Did you notice in verse 23, and again in verse 25, that he prays, Lord God of Israel, verse 23, there is no God in heaven above or on earth below like you who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. And again it is appended to that promise in verse 25. You will not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel only if your sons take heed to their way that they walk before me as you have walked before me. You have no grounds to expect God to hear and answer if you openly disobey God and walk contrary to God. There are no blessings promised for disobedience. The prayers of Solomon at this point 
His later departing from God is another issue, and I'm not going to deal with that now. But it certainly does not mean that this is hypocrisy. This is a genuine, sincere prayer. It is the prayer of a man who desires to obey and recognizes that God is a God who hears the prayers of those who walk before God with all of their hearts. God delights in the prayers of those who delight in Him and who delight not only in His promises but also in His precepts. Who desire not only to hear about His grace and His redeeming love but also desire to hear about His commands and to obey them. You see, the grace and mercy of God has a reasonable logic about it. It's the logic of Romans 12. That having seen the mercy of God, then you offer the members of your body and your bodies as living sacrifices to God. The logic is, I have redeemed you. I have been gracious to you. I have shown my everlasting love towards you. To Israel, he says, I took you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. I have become your God. It is perverse then for us to turn around, it would be perverse for Israel to turn around and say, well thank you very much, but I'll go my own way. No, the grace and mercy of God constrains us to walk in the ways of truth with all of our heart. It teaches us to walk in his ways. Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 9. Again, Solomon's being well taught. Deuteronomy 7, 9 talks there. Therefore know that the Lord your God, he is God. The faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy, there it is again, for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. Now you will say, but what happens? What happens? Not if and when, but when we sin. There's no if because we sin. What happens when we sin? Does that invalidate his mercy? What is the last word of the passage that we read this evening in verse 30? Forgive. Forgive. Here in heaven your dwelling place and when you hear forgive. Solomon's prayer is a prayer for forgiveness. And the sense in which I could preach another sermon now on the character of God, that he is a God who forgives. And Solomon knows that. But that's my next sermon, God willing. The forgiveness. These are pleadings and prayers and petitions in particular situations when Israel sins. Lord, hear from heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. God is a forgiving God. And because he is a forgiving God, that leads us back in the way of obedience. You see, you don't have to worship like the Baal worshippers. You don't have to cut your body so that your blood flows. I do not know the precise reason of the significance of their blood being shed. But it was all in vain. But there is one who has shed his blood. Isn't there? The Lord Jesus Christ. Why did he shed his blood? 
to atone for our sin. That we might know the forgiveness of sins. And knowing the forgiveness of sins, we might then come into the presence of our God. We might know him as our God and know him as our Father in heaven who hears and who answers and who forgives. Here is the blood of the new covenant. It is represented for us in the wine that we will later drink together. The blood of the new covenant, the blood of his own Son, Jesus Christ. The sure mercies of dead. The crucified Saviour raised from the dead, no longer to see corruption. That's him. Solomon. Solomon, in a sense, is preparing the way. The God to whom he prays is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is our God. He is committed to us. Beyond compare, immense, but utterly faithful. And personally responsive. You know this God? How then would you pray in the light of what you know? Isn't this an incentive and an encouragement to pour out your hearts unto God, even though you are sinners still? Let us be found then at the throne of grace. Let us be found calling upon this God. Let us delight in Him. Delight in His Word. Delight in Him. And his steadfast love, his loving kindness, his loyalty, his commitment to us. And that he delights to hear our prayers. That is our God. Let us love him. Let us serve him. Let us praise him. Let us extol the greatness of his name.